1: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible clinical psychologist, author, consultant, and speaker, Kelly Flanagan. Hello, Kelly, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about the three pillars of true companionship. And for those that don't know, Dr. Kelly Flanagan is a clinical psychologist, author, consultant, and speaker who enjoys walking people through the three essentials of a truly satisfying life, worthiness, belonging, and purpose. His writings have been featured in Reader's Digest, Huffington Post, The Five Love Languages, and in 2014, a letter he wrote to his daughter led to their appearance on The Today Show. In 2017, Kelly published his first book, Lovable, Embracing What is Truest About You So You Can Truly Embrace Your Life. And his next book, True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through, was published this month. How are you today, Kelly?
0: I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. You're, you're catching me in the middle of launch week for True Companions. So I, uh, I think I've, I've mostly managed to maintain my balance and remember that my people are more important than my projects. And I think I only went like three consecutive nights, sleeplessly laying awake, going, what the heck did I do? Putting all that personal stuff out into the world. (laughs) So um, last night, I actually got a decent night's sleep. So I must be cresting that vulnerability wave a little bit. So I'm doing good. Thanks for asking.
1: Well, that is what I kind of wanted to ask you about because first I want to thank you for this incredible work that you are doing in the world. And for our listeners that don't know you both on your blog and in your books, you write a lot of very personal stories about your relationship with your children, your relationship with your wife, which is very different than a lot of psychology books that I read about where the clinicians tend to talk about their patients and they really remain that keep that kind of like, third-person scientific objectivity, right? So I really want to appreciate the vulnerability that you have in sharing your stories. And yeah, I'm curious, how does it feel? I remember reading in your book, you mentioned how you're Baby brother, like almost died when he was drowning. So, do you ever meet a total stranger and they're like, So, yeah, when you were seven, I can't believe that thing happened to you.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, and sometimes I don't remember what I wrote. Like, you know, you don't quite keep track of, like, I can't remember. I wrote that blog post two years ago. And so, someone will will know something about me that I've even forgotten I've put out into the world, (laughs) which can be a little bit trippy. But my evolution as a psychologist and as a writer sort of influenced each other in the sense that, you know, I actually. When I first started blogging in 2012, the original goal was just to, to share more about my therapeutic services and the therapeutic process in public. But I, I think I'm sort of, I'm wired to be a little bit maybe more honest about my junk than the average person. And um, and I was going through my own healing process at the time. So I started to share a few more personal things on my blog back in 2012. And I noticed a really interesting thing happen. Just my clients started to come in and say, you know, I would have never told you this, but now that I, I read your blog post and now that I know you're messy in this way too, well, I feel like comfortable telling you this. And I, I realize that posture we take as therapists so often where we sort of sit back as the experts, tell client stories, because of course they're the ones with the problems and us, you know, um, was actually, actually hindering the healing process for a lot of my clients wasn't doing me a service or them. And, uh, and so I just sort of let myself continue to evolve in terms of what I feel comfortable writing. I always still think like, am I okay with a client knowing this about me? And if I am, then it's fair game, which means there's an awful lot of fair game. (laughs) And, uh, and, and so, yeah, so. Releasing something like this book, True Companions, into the world after three years of working on it and pushing the limits of, of honesty about, about life and relationships and myself, it's, it's a little daunting to finally have it out there. But again, I think three days and I'm, I'm starting to figure it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really beautiful. I totally understand that authenticity breeds more authenticity and vulnerability breeds more vulnerability. So when you are that way out in the world, people meet you in kind. That's right. Yeah. And then when they start to reciprocate that, you feel more permission
0: to do it. And the work that I've, I've done with folks and my, my own process of growing has just accelerated as a result of it. But it doesn't come without the, the occasional, as Brene Brown says, the occasional vulnerability hangover. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk more about your work in the world because you focused on what you kind of call the three essentials. So we have worthiness, belonging, and purpose. And I'm wondering how you got here. Like what made you focus on these three specific values?
0: Yeah. You know, I think as a psychologist, I realized that most of the time my clients were coming in wanting help with one of two things. They wanted help to improve their relationships. You know, that was the presenting problem, so to speak or they wanted more clarity about like, what am I here to do? Like, what's my life's purpose? And so I spent a lot of years trying to help folks directly with those two things. And it wasn't until I really started to wrestle with some of my own demons and history and everything that I started to realize like, well, you really can't make as much headway with with your your sense of belonging, your relationships, or your sense of purpose in the world if you haven't first done the fundamental foundational work of embracing your own worthiness and getting clarity about who you are and how you wanna show up to your people and how you wanna show up to your life. And so I remember I was when I was putting together a proposal for my first book, Lovable. I uh, I remember my agent called me one day and said, "Okay, so you got these three things, you know, worthiness, purpose, and belonging. Why those three things?" And I said to her, "No, no, it's not. It's not worthiness." You know, purpose and then belonging—it's worthiness, belonging, and purpose. That's sort of the the order in which we progress through our personal growth. And and she said, "Well, that sounds important. You should write the book about that." And that really is what Lovable is about. And it's this idea that until we really embraced who we are. Our true self, we can't really find belonging because we're not really showing up in the world authentically. But once we do, once we do start to reveal who we are in the world, we just sort of get to look around and see like who sort of celebrates that, who sees us and goes, hey, I I dig that. Let's let's get let's let's hang, you know. And uh, and this is how we find places of belonging. And then once we found those places of belonging where people really embrace who we are, now we've got community to support us as we're getting more and more clarity about how we want to to live out our our passions and pursue our sense of purpose and life. Uh, And then you pursue your purpose, and it takes you into new challenging territory, and you start to doubt yourself all over again, and you have to embrace your worthiness all (laughs) over again. You sort of cycle through it your whole life. But to me, that's the progression. It's how we grow kind of most authentically.
1: So it's worthiness, belonging, and purpose, not only in that order, but also kind of an iterative cycle. You know, yeah. One of the ways I describe it in
0: Lovable is it's sort of like circling a steep mountain. You know, you don't go straight up it. You, You sort of, you go around it concentrically. And so you circle back to the same view, but now you're higher up and you're viewing it from a different angle. You know, so when I released Lovable four years ago, I was wrestling with, you know, that self-doubt all over again. And, you know, here I am releasing true companions. And I think I'm wrestling with some of that self-doubt all over again, but I'm higher up. I'm further along. You know, it was three days instead of three months. This time <laughs> you begin to, excuse me, master this process of, of moving through your, through your uh, shame and back into your sense of worthiness. And so, and then from there you get to clarify even more clearly, who do you belong to and what do you want to do with
1: your life? So I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about both how your psychology background informs this work that you that you are doing, and also how the discipline of psychology is maybe treating your work. And I mean that because you first mentioned like Brene Brown, and I remember in one of her speeches, she also kind of like went to a publisher and was like, I want to research vulnerability. And the person was like, no one wants to learn about vulnerability. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think when a lot of people think of psychology, they think of pathologizing and they think about figuring out like what's wrong with a person curing and helping mental illness. And I think a lot of people have a stereotype or even an understanding that psychology is more about what's wrong and curing that rather than helping somebody live a fulfilling and happy and worthy life. So, what's been your experience in working as a psychologist and focusing on worthiness, belonging, and purpose?
0: That's a great question. That's a, no one has ever asked me that before. it's it's I love it. Um, so what's interesting, I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, like if you look, for instance, at the uh, the quotes, the epigraphs that begin each chapter in my books—you'll see that you know ninety percent of them are not from psychologists; they're from spiritual mentors and people who are respected leaders in various spiritual communities and religious communities. And and that's because for me, I don't distinguish so much between psychology and spirituality. I think they're so closely integrated that it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins. And so you know, ironically, I think um, most of the reception that my work has received has been more in uh, communities of faith. You know, I speak a lot more to to church groups and to other groups who are spiritually oriented than I do to psychological associations or conferences or that sort of thing. Part of that's just that it's my own voice. I don't think necessarily, you know, lovable so much about true self and false self. And there's enormous psychological literature out there about that. But the way that I write about it, I think is more attractive to spiritual communities and uh, and just more a reflection of my voice and my perspective on the world. So I'd say that's the direction in which. My work tends to lean. And I, yeah, I sort of like getting away from the pathologizing of everything and, and getting back to the basics of there's something basically good in you. And, uh, and there is a process to discover what that is and experience it and live from it. And, and again, that's, that's changed everything that I do as a psychologist.
1: That's really wonderful. And I, wholeheartedly agree with you. For me, psychology and spirituality have always overlapped because both involve a looking within and understanding the nature of our own mind, the nature of our own suffering, and removing the obstacles that prevent us from being happy. And indeed, when I was reading your book and looking throughout your website, I did find these ideas that I would definitely say are quite spiritual. And one of them was a writing that you had that worthiness isn't earned, it's remembered. And I definitely like agree and understand with the first part that we should all know that we're worthy of love, acceptance, and belonging no matter what. But that second part that our worthiness is remembered, I was like, wow, that's a very spiritual idea that you're putting forth there. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, well, what have we forgotten?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, I remember another conversation, and it wasn't, it was a text exchange I had with my my agent as we were proposing lovable. And, uh, it was a little further down the road and I'd sent her a bunch of writing related to the worthiness part of the book. And I remember she, I was, I think it was like a Friday night. I'm standing in my kitchen when I got her text and her text said, you know, okay. So you keep sending me all this, this worthiness stuff. And and I'll never forget. She, I, lo- I love her to death. She's, she said, it's great work if you can get it doc, but how do you become worthy?
1: <laughs> and,
0: uh, and I, I said to my wife, Oh, you don't become worthy. You you forgot that you were worthy and you need to remember that you are. That's how it works. And my wife, of course, is like, well, you should probably tell her that. And I did, and and that became one of the themes of lovable. But the idea is that, you know, we enter into the world with a a self that's created for us, a true self that is is good enough um, and worthy of love and belonging, a true self knitted together in our mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made in the Imago Day, if you will. And when you when you witness young children. You know, toddler it toddlers, young young children, they don't question this. They don't they don't walk around going, hmm, I wonder if I'm good enough to be to be loved. They assume that they are. They just know it as part and parcel of who they are until they're given a message that contradicts that. And that message is something that we call shame, which is the message that you aren't good enough to be loved and to belong exactly the way you are. And, and so children accumulate enough of this message over time that they eventually, usually by at least fourth grade, start to build what we call the false self or an ego. And this false self is now the self they're creating to, to make sure that as they go through the world, they're going to be loved and they're going to belong the way that they want to. It always backfires for all of us human <laughs> beings. But at some point, usually by middle school into high school, we are now identifying more with our false self. And we're literally beginning to forget who we really came into the world as. And so, so much of healing, so much of growth is about remembering and reconnecting with that true self that is still in there, but buried away safely, you know, so that it it hopefully can't be shamed anymore. And reconnecting with that part of us and then sort of resurrecting it and bringing it out to live.
1: That's so heartbreaking that children assume that they are worthy until they are given the message that they are not and, uh, like,, yeah. where does that message come from? I feel like parents try their best, yeah.
0: So I'm so glad you put your finger on that because I like to reassure parents who are listening to these kinds of conversations. You know, they're all, does that mean I'm shaming my kids? And my answer is always absolutely, you shame your kids. <laughs> like we, <laughs> no. there's one thing that shame does is it overflows. And you know? so we're all carrying it. We all tend to pass it on to other people. We're all still in the process of healing and becoming. So we do do some of that, but I try to reassure parents, kids don't need you to be perfect. They need you to know you're not perfect. And when they call you out on doing things like shaming them, you need to to be open and receptive to that. And then they'll learn, oh, I don't have to be perfect to be okay. Mom makes mistakes, dad makes mistakes, they own them. Relationships can heal through that. And so it does happen. I think there's no way around it. I think an awful a lot of parents these days are trying to somehow get their kids through life without experiencing shame. But you know, even if you don't do it as a parent, if you imagine, you know, if you happen to be the first perfect one in that sense, they're going to get it out in the world. So let's be talking about it. Let's, you know, let's be talking about what's the message that isn't true about you, that you're not good enough the way that you were made. And so the goal of a parent in my mind is not to never shame their children. It's that as their child begins to build that false self, which they will inevitably do and they need to do in some ways to stay safe out in middle school, you know, that the goal of a parent is to help keep alive that connection to their true self. Okay, I see you doing this. You're adopting these personas and these roles and these protections. But let me remind you as much as I can about the beautiful kid that I've known all along that's still in there. So that when they're ready to remember that kid, it's not quite so hard to do so.
1: That's really beautiful. And we really just recorded an episode on parenting and our guests had the exact same message that as a parent... You don't have to be perfect, and embracing your imperfections is an important way of raising your child, so that they realize they also don't have to be perfect.
0: Exactly. Oh,
1: there's so much pressure
0: to be raised by a parent that everyone thinks is perfect to do it yourself to replicate it. And deep, you're you're inside of you, right? As a kid, so you know you're not perfect, um, and you're like, what's ro- what's wrong with me that I'm not as perfect as mom or dad? It's a terrible conundrum to be in. So I'm glad you're you're hearing that from multiple people here.
1: So I love that you said that the goal is to keep alive that connection to their true self in terms of our parenting goal. And I almost want to get into like a cosmological discussion about who our true self is. So we can just talk about it briefly because I'm curious as we're going along this spiritual path of self-discovery, of discovering our true self. Are there any other words you might describe this true self, like soul or spirit or the God within or love or light or source? Like when, who are we deep down? In your opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, oh, I, this is, let's
0: have a look. In, if, if you don't mind, invite me back and let's do a whole episode on it. Like that's actually, I'm going on a friend's podcast uh, here, not in the not too distant future. We're just going to talk about this. We're just going to riff about it. Um, in, in Lovable, I describe each of us as having a spark of the divine at the center of us. And that spark of the divine is is part and parcel with our true self. I sometimes say that we, you know, it's like we're all fragments of the divine being drawn back to the, to the source, like metal filaments being drawn back to the magnet, you know? That's the beautiful thing about it is that as we get closer to our true self, there's a lot of concern that as you talk about true self, there's a sort of navel-gazing selfishness to it. But the, the reality is, as you draw closer to your true self, you're drawing closer to your divinity, to the ground of your being, to the most open and inclusive and giving and sacrificial sacrificial and surrendering energy that we can have access to. And so to me, it's quite the opposite of selfish. It's the, it's the way out of selfishness in a way.
1: So I think I need to add spiritual guide to your bio.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you. (laughs) So
1: it's just, it's so refreshing to really hear that, you know, from a clinician, from somebody with some important letters after their name, that the spark of the divine is at the center of all of us. And I love also that you said... We are all fragments of the divine being drawn back to source. Yeah. And so much of what gets
0: stuck in our lives is resistance to that drawing, you know? So I just, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful to let people know that the drawing is good and beautiful and, and something to celebrate and, and participate in.
1: Absolutely is. So I want to shift a little bit more towards today's topic and a little bit more towards your newest book. And as I was getting into it, I was quite surprised to find that a book on true companionship and on our true companions begins by talking about loneliness (laughs) and talking about the importance of befriending our loneliness. So... What what gives, doctor? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. Well, that's honestly, that's part of the
0: vulnerability I felt over the last month is like, really? You're going to start a book on relationships about loneliness? Like, No one's going to get through that first third. But I just hear, I keep hearing over and over. I had about 100 people on my launch team, and now the books have been out there for a few days. And I'm just getting, you know, I probably had two dozen emails today from people just saying... This is a game changer for me. My experience of my loneliness is being transformed in a moment and it's it's liberating, it's freeing. I feel more comfortable in my own skin than I felt in a long time. And boy, if we're not comfortable in our own skin, how can, we, how can we really encounter the skin of another, right? So so the idea, and this is, I give my people, my, my sort of online tribe so much credit for this because I knew what I wanted to say about loneliness, um, but... When I brought them the original ideas about it through Facebook Live conversations and these sorts of things, they push back on me and they're like, ooh, loneliness. That's That sounds terrible. No, loneliness can't be a good thing. It can't be redeemed. And it made me think of a, a couple who came into my office once and they were fighting about whether or not to put a TV in a living room. And, uh, and I, was having, I was walking them through a conversation about it and it, something dawned on me. And I'm like, oh, they're using... They're using the word living room in different ways here. This is interesting. And uh, and so I, I I stopped them and I asked the husband, I said, Can you please describe in detail the room you're referring to as a living room? And uh he did. His wife's like, well, that's not the living room, that's the family room. You can put a TV in there, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think that's what what's happening here when we talk about our loneliness is that my people told me that when I when when we usually say lonely, we're actually talking about a room inside of us that's decorated with three really painful human experiences, which is abandonment shame and isolation. And so when you hear loneliness, you hear abandonment, shame and isolation. But really loneliness, the loneliness I'm talking about is an entirely different room within us. It's the room right at the center of us. It's the place no one else can get to. It's, it's at our very core. It is so unique that no one else can understand it. And therefore we are always alone in the experience of being ourselves. And if we can recognize that that's not a bad thing, It's not a broken thing about us. It's not a problem with our people because they're not taking it away from us. If we can embrace that our loneliness is just the shadow side of our uniqueness and our deepest self, then all of a sudden we have an opportunity to befriend it, to move towards it, to get to know ourselves better and to enjoy who we are even more deeply. And so I've heard from people this week that, wow, this is every time I feel lonely, I wonder, what did I do wrong? you know, uh, why am I lonely? Why do I deserve to feel lonely? And now I realize I'm lonely because I'm human and I can begin to enter into that experience as an opportunity to get to know my humanity even better. And to me, that's freeing for relationships. It just sets up an entirely new dynamic in relationships. So I'm super excited people are receiving it that way. I had my fingers crossed and it seems like it's happening.
1: No, it it makes so much sense. It even reminds me of, I teach a lot of writing workshop and particularly even around poetry. And I'll tell people like, you have a poet inside of you. You have a unique story inside of you because no one has lived the life that you have lived. No one has had the perspective that you have had. So what I'm hearing from you is that befriending our loneliness is actually embracing our uniqueness. That's right.
0: Yeah, and I say somewhere in True Companions that even though, like you know, as human beings we're each 99.9% alike, um, we each still have three million variations in our genetic strand that are, are entirely unique to us that no other human being shares. Three million ways, right, in which no one else could understand us. And then you multiply that by how unique our story is, and it's like the number of digits are infinite in terms of how, how rare we are. And so, yeah. So to be able to tap into that, that rareness and that uniqueness and and speak from it is a gift to the world if we can do it.
1: So there's 3 million variations of our strand. I'm I'm glad that clinician scientist just came back to the conversation. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) You know, it just, it it does put it in in sort of scientific terms, like how dramatically unique we all are, even though we have so much in common.
1: So, our topic for today is the three pillars of true companionship. And let's get into those right now. I want to make sure we have enough time to cover them all. So, what are the three pillars of true companionship?
0: Well, it's a good segue from what we were just talking about.
1: So, the three pillars
0: are the one experience that causes the most conflict in relationships, but could be the source of the greatest connection, and that's loneliness. Loneliness causes an enormous amount of conflict in relationships as we demand that our partners and our people sort of take it away from us when they're not even able to do that. And we wouldn't want them to, even if they could. So it's the one experience of loneliness that we could actually draw upon to connect rather than be in conflict. The second is what I call the one goal that is essential to all true companionship, which is the mutual commitment to taking responsibility for our own defenses and protectiveness. So much of what happens in relationships is, is about me pointing out your defenses and the way you're protecting and trying to get you to do something about it. But if we can both in any relationship mutually agree that we'll take responsibility for our own and that we can share that goal together, then it removes so much of that tug of war push pull. That goes on in relationships. So the one experience of loneliness, the one goal of mutual responsibility for our defenses, and then the one perspective that we really need to adopt in order to really give the attention to our relationships that all of this requires. And so if I can if I can get back to the psychology side of things here again for a minute, we're actually neurologically wired to to quit paying attention to our closest companions. So there's a term for it in psychology called habituation. And habituation is the idea that if, if a stimulus is presented over and over again and you deem it safe, your, your mind actually withdraws resources from processing it. So for instance, this morning I got dressed and at first I could feel my blue jeans and my, you know, my flannel, but I'm not, I don't feel them anymore at this point in the day because my, my brain said, oh, it's there all the time. And it's safe, and we need to keep channels open for more dangerous crises that are being thrown our way. Well, so ironically, you know, we take our people for granted, and we're wired to do so. We're wired to actually—they're there all the time. They're basically safe, and so we we redirect our our mental and emotional resources elsewhere. So we need to reorient ourselves and de, you know unhabituate to our companions. And there's a great line of psychological research by a psychologist Laura Carsonson at Stanford that says basically. Unless you are aware of your fragility, she says, unless your fragility is primed, your priorities will include expansiveness and achievement and accumulation and meeting new people and doing new things. But once your fragility is primed, doesn't matter how old you are, your priorities will immediately shift to deep presence, uh, to ordinary everyday pleasures. Into to deepening your existing relationships with your closest companions. And so to me, the third pillar is this one perspective of fragility and recognizing that if we don't keep that prominent in our minds, we will naturally like, we'll just sort of life will pass us by as we get distracted by other things. But if we can prime our fragility and be aware of it, we're going to naturally bring a deep sense of presence to our companions. So... hope that answers your question.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And I'd love to kind of go into each one and let's just take the last one further since that's what we're talking about right now. And embracing our fragility just reminds me of a lot of, again, spiritual teachings that tell us to kind of embrace even our own death in order to live a fully lived life. And you mentioned this process of habituation and this process of automating our partner, like they kind of become a routine. So Frame the picture a bit quick. Like how long does this process take and then what does it usually look like? Well, I'll give you a couple of
0: examples from Carstensen's research. So she did like sort of naturalistic observational research centering around various crises. So for instance around 9/11 or around the SARS epidemic, um, and what they found was that when they interviewed people during those times, it didn't matter what your age was. You your priorities had shifted to the the priorities of what are typically elderly priorities, caring about your people, focusing on everyday pleasures. And then once you got further away from those crises, um, young people would shift back towards these these other priorities like accumulation and achievement and expansion, whereas the elderly would continue to have their fragility primed because their life's horizon is so close. It's always primed, right? And I, I suspect I suspect if that research was can being continued right now in the midst of this pandemic and all the various quarantines we're in, I would suspect that everyone's everyone's fragility is more primed than it's probably been in modern human history, to be honest with you, or at least since World War Two. This idea that, whoa, a tiny invisible thing can completely uproot and upend our lives. So I think I think when you you think about the world right now our fragility is prime but we're going to move beyond this we're going to move beyond this and then Carstensen did a laboratory study where she brought in i think it was people from age 8 to 93 and she primed them to two different things one was a question she said uh, basically like if you could get a if you knew there was a medical discovery and you had 30 bonus years what would What would you do with your life? And what she found was that everybody from eight to 93 started talking, even like 93 year olds were like, Oh, I, I do a second career. I, you know, I try to buy this house and live on the beach. And, um, but then she asked a second question. And she said essentially, if you knew you were moving away to a distant land and would never see your people or, or your current context again, how you know, what would your priorities be? And everyone from eight to 93 said, I'd focus in on my my people, I'd focus in on deepening my relationships and being present to my life. So the idea being with just a simple question, you can reorient your priorities. You know, so with just a simple question of on my last day, how will I wish I'd lived today? If, if you were to ask that question at the beginning of every day, your fragility would be primed and you'd have an opportunity to make different decisions with your day. It's a very different question than if this was the last day of my life, right? Because, you know, then I wouldn't go to work or pay the mortgage bills or, you know. <laughs> you know I right. I don't know what crazy. Take got a big thing. loan. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what crazy <laughs> things I do. But if this were the last day of my life, say 20, 30, 40 years from now, how will I wish I'd spent today? And the reality is, you'll still have to balance your people with all of your other priorities, but you'll you will keep them in more balance, and you'll be more present to them. And so, I think it can be as simple as just asking ourselves one reorienting question, can can sort of resensitize us to our people. You're right, Zach. I say one more thing. You're right, though. Like if we if we haven't cultivated some surrender, right, to our mortality, some acceptance of of death, then then we don't get access to this invaluable tool for for cultivating companionship because we'll resist any thoughts about or awareness of our fragility and we'll live our lives habituated to our companions until the end. So I do think this, this pillar sort of goes hand in hand with doing the human work of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be mortal? What does it mean to be fragile? And how do we come to terms with that and accept that so that we can really live our lives according to our highest values.
1: Absolutely. And that is my follow-up question is, I really love this process of recognizing our own fragility, of shifting our perspective to think about how do I want to live my best day today? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? And how does that affect our relationships that we're in? Like I can see it's a very nice inquiry to make sure I'm living in line with my purpose, to make sure I'm doing what matters. And what does that change in my relationship?
0: Well, I, th- I think I just give you a practical example right on the heels of releasing my new book. There's a billion things to do to get word about it out there and, and those sorts of things. Like it's one of the busier weeks of my life, but I might get a little emotional talking about this. But my, my wife called me <laughs> from work just a couple hours ago and she just said, I want you to know how much it meant to me that, that yesterday you took an hour out of your day and had lunch with Aiden, who's our 17 year old. And that when I got home, you were going through Caitlin's homework with her. And those behaviors came directly out of the priming of my fragility and going, I got a billion things to do today, but someday I'm going to wish I'd taken an hour to have lunch with my son. And I'm going to wish I'd taken just a moment or two to to enjoy my daughter sharing her homework. And then like you said, you know vulnerability is reinforcing. Like it starts to to feed itself. That sort of presence starts to feed itself as well because you get to experience your how happy your daughter is that her daddy is interested in her homework, right? Or how much fun you had sitting at the table with your son who's only going to be in the house for another year or so. And so to me, those are the concrete just the small moments that start to build up and add up and encourage us to do it more and more.
1: Absolutely. It's one of the most common and profound teachings of impermanence of the reality of our death is that the only time we have to express love, express appreciation for the people in our lives is this moment right here and right now. And it makes every moment and every day become precious with the people that we are with.
0: does. And you know, I come from a faith community that has a lot of focus on the afterlife and one of the chapters in True Companions is, is about like, that is good. I think it's a beautiful thing to include that in our, <laughs> in my tradition, my, in our eschatology. But don't forget about the heaven that exists right here inside of molecules and matter. Don't, don't overlook it while you're waiting for a different heaven because um, it's as beautiful as the one that comes after. So, so focus here, focus now.
1: Don't forget about the heaven that exists in molecules and matter. Can I have that on a t shirt? <laughs> See what I can do. <laughs> All right. Cool. I'll be on your merch. I want you to open it to your merch site. <laughs> there you go. Part of your website. So, priming our fragility, it's a really beautiful pillar. And let's talk about another one that you mentioned. So, you mentioned that we want to have a mutual commitment to taking responsibility for our own defensiveness. And I imagine this comes up a lot in couples therapy, is that a couple comes to you and they're like, yes, you need to tell my partner how wrong they are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right.
1: <laughs> like, few people go to couples therapy to work on themselves. They, you know, they the other person is the problem. So I'm imagining there's a process of kind of guiding somebody to acknowledge like their own stuff. So, you know, what does it look like to take responsibility for our own stuff? Yeah. Well, I
0: share a metaphor in um in True Companions that I think it seems to have helped a lot of couples already who have encountered it sort of understand real quickly the intuitive wisdom of how important it is for both people to be responsible for their own stuff. And it's the metaphor of of a butterfly that's trying to emerge from its cocoon. And it's fascinating to me because so so this butter, you know, the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, goes into the lonely space of of the cocoon to become the beautiful thing it's here to be. And then then eventually, and it spins this protection, right? To protect it while it's doing that. And I think that's how our lives work. Like once we start to get hurt and shamed, we spin these protections. But if we want to be able to truly connect with, to sort of fly with our panions, we need to be able to exit those protections. We need to leave them behind. And so a butterfly, when it's time to, to exit the chrysalis, it actually, it literally pushes its way out with its wings. Like it ruptures the chrysalis and eventually pushes its way all the way out with its wings, though it takes some time. And the interesting thing about this to me is that if a butterfly, if you, if you tried to help a butterfly along, say, I'm going to get you out of your protections real quickly so you can get on with life, and you cut them out of their, their cocoon, they wouldn't be able to fly because it's, it's through the process of pushing their way out of the protections that they grow strong enough to fly, actually. And, and I think the same is true of us as people, that it's the process of growing out of our protections and pushing our way out of them that makes us strong enough to love. And so it's important that we not be constantly focused on our partner's protections and saying, well, this is this is what you're doing and this is how to stop doing it because they have to go through that process. They have to take responsibility for that process. It's the way that they will grow as a person. It's the way that they'll grow as a companion and strengthen themselves enough to to, to love you for the long haul. So if two people can be doing that, Taking responsibility for their own protections, then you're you really are golden. And in, in True Companions, what I did is I sort of laid out what I see as the nine core protections that we as human beings bring to relationships to help people sort of start to become aware. Oh yeah, that's I do that one. I I engage in yesing or helicoptering or in order to kind of begin to facilitate that process of self-awareness around our own protections.
1: So it's the process of growing out of our protections that makes us strong enough to love. And this is a message I also communicate in some of my teachings, particularly when I teach yoga, is I tell people, like, I really wish we were plants and we could just absorb the light and (laughs) just soak up wonderful nutrients from the ground. But that's not how humans work. And we actually grow through stress. Yes. And to, get, to get stronger physically, you have to put stress on the body by lifting heavy weights. But to get stronger emotionally, mentally, and relationally, we also have to do some work.
0: This stands out as a time where like, I push my way out of my protection very consciously. I, I woke up one morning, I was in a bad mood. I don't know why. I, I was aware at some level that I was sort of acting like a jerk. And my wife said, why are you acting like a jerk this morning? <laughs> and, <laughs> and if I were to elect, let that protection lead the way, it would be, I'm not acting like a jerk. You're a jerk for asking me, you know? Um, but I was aware of it enough to push my way beyond it and just say, I don't know. I'm sorry. Right? And so it's it's just those two things. It's that moment of awareness of the protection that you're using in this given moment. And then the choice to say, I'm going to leave it behind in favor of something different right now. That's the whole process. And if you're engaged in that on a moment to moment basis in your relationships, I think that's what grows us into true companions.
1: That's such a nice phrase. I don't know. And I'm sorry. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's like I,
0: I don't know. Maybe I had a bad dream, but I am aware I'm acting like a jerk.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awareness is such a key step. Absolutely. So those are the two pillars. And then the first pillar we've covered a, a little bit, but I just thought I'd leave it open if there's anything more you wanted to say, because we talked a lot about loneliness already, but you mentioned loneliness also our third pillar. And we want to draw upon our loneliness in order to connect rather than be in conflict. So what does that process look like?
0: Yeah, I have, I, I get an image in my head of like if, if loneliness were a tangible object you could hold in both hands, right? It's the difference between Saying here, hold, holding, holding your loneliness out to your companions, and saying here, take this away from me, versus sort of holding it close, no expectation that they'll take it away from you, and holding it up and saying here, let me, let me tell you about my loneliness. Let me, let me show it. Let me, t- let me tell you about the story of loneliness in my life that started way before I met you, and that sure sometimes you intersect with, but and and that when two people can hold it close and hold it up instead of holding it out. What they begin to discover is that the experience of human loneliness actually becomes a source of deep connection. It's like, I can't understand what it's like to be you completely, but I can understand what it's like to be lonely because I've got it too. And all of a sudden we feel a little bit less alone in our loneliness. So to me, that's how if we quit trying to shove our loneliness toward our companions saying, take it away, and instead use it as an opportunity to be honest, authentic, to reveal ourselves, we actually discover ourselves more connected, even though the loneliness doesn't go away.
1: I feel like that approach just breeds empathy. Yes,
0: absolutely. And that is, that's a, it's a mutual, I love that. That's a great word for it. It's a mutual journey towards empathy for what it's like to be human and to be sort of alone inside our skin.
1: Just hearing your story of like holding up our loneliness, it just reminded me that the silver lining of loneliness is it does. Bring us in desire to connect with somebody else. Like, if we were really happy 100% all the time being lonely, we would never enter into relationships. That's right. I, in True Companions, I describe
0: loneliness as similar to like hunger or fatigue, you know, just two normal human experiences that tell you that you're in need of something. And you never get angry at your hunger and say, Oh, there's something wrong with me. Like, <sighs> I'm, I'm bad because I'm hungry. You'd say, Oh, um, I have a normal human experience that's telling me I need food. Well, you know, loneliness is a normal human experience that's telling you that you need closeness and it's okay.
1: Indeed. Thank you so much, Dr. Flanagan, for coming on to the show and sharing us both your experience, clinical wisdom, and also your spiritual wisdom. And I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Who
0: do I wish everyone <laughs> knew about love? I would say that being. Being loved unconditionally heals us, but giving love companionably grows us, and we need both. And so I, I I hope that folks make space for both of those in their lives.
1: Absolutely. Loving companionship is such a beautiful container for our growth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a great way to say it. Thanks so much, Kelly, for coming on to the show. For our listeners that want to learn more about you, how can they find you?
0: Yeah, you can go to... um drkellyflanagan.com. It's drkellyflanagan.com. And uh, if you go there, actually, and, uh, and click on the link in my uh, header, um, or maybe in the top right corner, depending on what the website looks on a given day, you actually you'll join my email list, get a monthly help letter that I call it, and, uh, and also get a 52-week guide for, for walking through your worthiness, belonging, and purpose. And if someone's inter- interested in picking up True Companions, they can go to truecompanionsbook.com.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly, for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember that worthiness is not earned. It doesn't need to be earned. You already are worthy and all you need to do is remember your worthiness. We hope you remember the three pillars of true companionship. To use your loneliness as a path of connection To recognize we all have stuff to work through and to take responsibility for that stuff. And also to recognize fragility and the change of life makes every moment precious. And the only time to love each other is right now. So now is a wonderful time to tell the people in your life that you love and care about them and to tell them what you appreciate about them. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Kelly. Oh, thanks, Zach. This was a, a true pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.